Yeah, um, kids, amateur sport, recreational athletes, uh, probably the ones we need to be most concerned about because I think in many ways they are more at risk than your elite athletes. They don't have all the support structure, the, the facilities around them, um, probably not the awareness and um, the education around the risks of exercising in the heat. That's Dr Aaron Peterson talking about heat risks in sport and he was on the Australian Broadcasting Commission Radio. Yes, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I am your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. And I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Let's have a listen now to what Dr Peterson said about heat risks in sport. If temperatures are going to continue to get warmer, uh, we have to think about the safety of our athletes. Um, when we're exercising in the heat, there's a much greater risk of heat illness. So that heat illness can be anything from what we call heat exhaustion, which is just simply um, you know, fatigue, maybe collapse, fainting from excessive heat. Well, it can go all the way up to what we call heat stroke, uh, which affects the central nervous system, can affect our organs and, and can result in death in extreme cases. Are sporting organisers, in your view, taking, uh, uh, taking heed of these dangers, focusing as much as they should on the, on the safety threat posed to sports professionals? Yeah, I, I think most sporting bodies are definitely starting to do the right thing. So mm. having heat policies in place... Um, so that there are um, guidelines around when is it too hot um, for athletes to play. It, it is a tricky thing to do, though, because there are a lot of variables or different factors which influence how hot is too hot. So mm. We can't just simply say it's 30 degrees, no plane. Mm. It's, it's more complex it's, than that. It's the problem, isn't it, because uh, unless the world uh, does more to stop emissions and, and the pace of global heating, the summers will get longer and, and hotter affecting tournaments, sporting tournaments of all codes well and truly into the future. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's almost a certainty that, that we're going to see more cancellations or rescheduling of sport. If, if we continue to go about it the way that we are, we may have to think about changing when we play, early in the morning, in the evening, mm. when it's cooler. And this applies for amateur sport as well. I remember growing up in Queensland, going and playing netball on a Friday afternoon, and it just being it like being 35 degrees. And as a child, playing netball into school sport, what are we going to do with kids doing amateur sport? Yeah, um, kids, amateur sport, recreational athletes, probably the ones we need to be most concerned about because I think in many ways they are more at risk than your elite athletes. They don't have all the support structure, the, the facilities around them, um, probably not the awareness and um, the education around the risks of exercising in the heat. So that, that's probably where a lot of the emphasis focus needs to be. Let's listen now to 90 seconds from Yale Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. As cities try to reduce gun violence, they may face an unexpected roadblock, heat. A recent study finds that hotter-than-normal days come with a higher risk of shootings. Researchers looked at data from 100 U.S. cities over a six-year period. They found that as temperatures increased, so did the rate of gun violence. 
I think the key finding from the study is that almost 7% of shootings in U.S. cities are attributable to daily temperature differences. Jonathan Jay is a public health researcher at Boston University and one of the study authors. The exact link between heat and gun violence is not yet clear. But Jay says that when it's hot and people are uncomfortable, they're more likely to act aggressively. And on warmer days, people are also more likely to be outside, interacting with others. Pretty simple interpersonal disputes are the single most common reason that gun violence occurs. So the study suggests that as the climate warms, cities may have to contend with more gun violence. But they can work to counter the trend by planting trees and taking other steps to reduce urban heat. This is just one more important reason to address climate change. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Dr. Michael Mann has written a new book entitled The Fragile Moment. And here he talks about that book on the podcast Weather Geeks. You'll find a link for that podcast in the show notes. The topic of climate change and the future of our planet is both important to us, but also difficult to understand. But if we want to know more about our future, we need to take a look into the history of our planet and our species. In his latest book, Our Fragile Moment, Dr. Michael Mann walks readers through our paleoclimate record and illustrates how it can serve as a roadmap to preserving our fragile moment. What you decide to do from there is entirely up to you. Dr. Mann, thank you for joining us today on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you, Marshall. It's great to be with you. Well, and I'm going to call him Michael from this point on because we know each other well, good friends and colleagues. But uh, Dr. Michael Mann needs no introduction. He's one of the top scholars in the world on the topic of climate change and earth system science. So it's really an honor to have you here. I I start with the the same question. So uh, I'm going to start it with you as well. How'd you become a weather geek or in this case, perhaps a climate geek? Yeah, thanks. Um, and, uh, you know, it's great. Like I said, it's great to be uh, with you, my friend. Um, you know, uh, I had a sort of circuitous path um, that led me into climate science. I was an undergraduate uh, double major in applied math and physics at UC Berkeley. And then I went off to uh, Yale University to study physics. Um, I was going to do my PhD in, in theoretical physics. And then I ran into uh, a guy named Barry Saltzman. Um, who was a, uh, a scientist, a geoscientist in the Department of Geology and Geophysics, um, and realized that there were some really exciting opportunities to use the math and physics that I'd learned to work on this huge problem, understanding Earth's climate system. And so I literally left the physics building, walked down the, the hill, um, ended up transferring into geology and geophysics to work with Barry on uh, both modeling Earth's climate system and studying data that can shed light on the climate system and climate change. Now, one interesting little historical footnote uh, that I actually talk about in the book, um, uh, Barry in his later years got into uh, sort of deep time paleoclimate, understanding the ice ages, climate changes over hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, but he actually started out in meteorology, in weather. And in fact, uh, it was his equations uh, sometimes called the Lorenz-Saltzman equations. Uh, it was the solution of this system of equations that he had developed to uh, understand certain weather problems that led uh, Ed Lorenz, who was a contemporary of his at MIT, 
um, to uh, basically discover what we now call chaos, uh, the fact that the weather exhibits this um, uh, very interesting property where it's unpredictable uh, beyond some time scale. Um, so Barry, you know, had a, a, actually had a, an important role in that particular uh, discovery, but he went on to study climate and long-term climate dynamics, and, and that's what he was doing when I went to work with him in the early 1990s. Really good introduction. Uh, a, a typical path for many of us in the field, but also there are many stories. And so that's why I like to gauge the guests and is our listeners so that they can understand how different people kind of get in this field. Because, I mean, you know it. And I mean, I'm not exaggerating that you're one of the most well-known scientists in the world, particularly in climate, but just in general. You're also uh, one that's often attacked, one that's often, um, you know, the, the, on the other side of vitriol and some other things that we perhaps will get into. But I want to give the listeners uh, a bit of your background here before we launch into the discussion. Um, Michael Mann is the Presidential Distinguished Professor at the University of Pennsylvania in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences. He also has a secondary appointment in the Annenberg School for Communication. He is also the director of the Penn Center for Science Sustainability and the media. You've already heard about some of his background uh, academically. He's been a lead author on chapters in the IPCC, the third assessment, uh, has authored six books as co-founder of realclimate.org, which we'll get into some of that later. But, you know, I want to start, I want to jump right into why you wrote Our Fragile Moment. I actually, you know, in, in my commentary, I had a, I had the fortunate uh, luck to be able to screen the book ahead of time. And one of the statements that I made is that it really does a nice job of slaying, and this is a term I often use, slaying the zombie theory out there that climate scientists don't seem to understand past climates. So tell us about the motivation for this particular book. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I mean, there were sort of a number of motivations that came together. Uh, this is sort of my bread and butter. This is um, the science that I sort of was doing at the beginning of my career that resulted in the so-called hockey stick curve uh, we may or may not get into later. Um, and so uh, so that's sort of where I started out. And I've you know forged these other paths, um, uh, communication, uh, uh, climate change impacts. Um, uh, you and I are both very interested in that connection between climate change and extreme weather events, and there's a lot of really interesting science to be done there. Um, but my sort of uh, paleoclimate is where I started, and I had never really written a book about that. I'd written, you know, books about a whole bunch of other things, but not about sort of, um, you know, the, the very science that uh, I began my career with and today, where uh, which I still engage in. Um, but there was another thing going on here. Um, you, you're right that the, the zombie myths, um, you sometimes, you know, in social media, I know you and I all encounter you oh, know, yes. uh, climate, tr climate trolls, trolls who will say things like, we'll tweet something about climate change. Is, Don't you know that climate changes all the time? And it's, well, yeah, we do know that. And the reason you know it is because of the science that we've been doing. <laughs> I don't know how we would have missed that in grad school. <laughs> so I, 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 I wanted to put you know, provide that context. Yeah, climate does change naturally. And here's what it actually tells us. It's not a reason for casualty about the climate crisis. The lessons that, you know, that we derive from studying past climates actually deliver a message of, of urgency, uh, but also agency. And this has been sort of my tagline in recent years. 
uh, climate, the climate crisis, there's urgency, but there's also agency. It's not too late to do anything. And one of the things that I've also sort of struggled with in my last book, uh, The New Climate War, was really about sort of some of the tactics uh, that we're seeing used today as the science becomes undeniable, uh, but polluters are still looking for excuses to, you know, for business as usual to keep us addicted to fossil fuels. And so they're looking for other ways to sort of disengage climate advocates and activists. And one of those, ironically, is doomism. Um, If, you know, we can, if we become convinced it's too late to do anything about the climate crisis, then why do anything? It it potentially leads us down that same path of disengagement as denial itself. And so I had seen the paleoclimate record often used. So now we're not talking about the deniers, we're talking about the doomers. (laughs) Um, By doomers to argue that it's too late, for example, that some of these past uh, warming episodes were driven by runaway warming uh, due to the escape of methane. And this is underway now and there's nothing we can do about it. And we're all going to go extinct like the dinosaurs did within 10 years. Increasingly, I'd been seeing this sort of mythology uh, sort of – percolate on social media and sort of infect uh, even climate advocates um, uh, with sort of doomism. Uh, And so I wanted to talk about what the paleoclimate record once again really does tell us, for example, about feedbacks and runaway climate change and, uh, you know, hysteresis loops to get a bit geeky with you. Oh, we love geeky terms here. (laughs) <laughs> so, and I get a little bit into that. I wanted, um, you know, readers to understand the phenomenon of hysteresis, which is a physics phenomenon. It has to do with the fact that systems can behave in different ways if they come from different directions. Even if the parameters are the same, it matters what direction you came from. Did you get here by cooling from a hot climate or did you get here by warming from a cold climate and arrive at the same location? You can arrive at the same location and have a very different climate depending on where you came from. And that turns out to be really important in taking away lessons from the paleoclimate record. So I spend a little bit of time um, in, in several chapters getting into that as well. How about we now listen to this? Thanks for joining us tonight um, for this event on preparing for the unpredictable, which focuses on the role of spontaneous and volunteer community organizing and reducing risk in the midst of climate disasters. I'm David Schlossberg. I'm the director of the Sydney Environment Institute and a professor of environmental politics at the University of Sydney. I want to start by acknowledging that I live and work on uh, Gadigal land. The University of Sydney and the Sydney Environment Institute sit uh, on the land of the Gadigal uh, of the Eora Nation. Their lands were taken without consent, without treaty, without voice, Sovereignty over place was never ceded, um, nor was decision-making about that place. So we acknowledge elders and the knowledge that they hold, uh, and tonight in particular acknowledge uh, knowledge about how to live sustainably with lands and waters, and knowledge about how to respond to crises with resilience. The Sydney Environment Institute is an active supporter of the Yes Vote uh, on the question of an Indigenous voice to the federal government, in part to require more consultation on legislation and initiatives that would otherwise continue to undermine environments and indigenous connection to place. Um, Next week, next Friday, the 13th uh, of October, Friday the 13th, makes sense, um, is the UN's International Day for Disaster Risk Reduction. So we thought we would get a jump on that by holding this event 
to talk about a Sydney Environment Institute project that's funded by the New South Wales uh, Disaster Risk Reduction Fund. So the first headline I read this morning uh, in The Guardian was Victorian bushfire warnings downgraded, replaced by flood warnings and water rescue. Two of the past four days um, have been heat records in Sydney, um, both over 35 degrees, over 37 uh, in Penrith. We've already had multiple bushfires in New South Wales and Victoria, uh, including home losses on the South Coast last night. Every time it rains, there's now potential for flash flooding. Every time it heats up, there's potential for fire and the health impacts on those who can't afford air conditioning and anxiety about those climate changing fossil fueled events is everywhere. So one of the things that we've discussed at the Sydney Environment Institute is the shift from a focus on single events, single shock events, and then that usual recovery and response cycle, right? You have a disaster, there's a response, there's some kind of recovery, some kind of reconstruction, and then more disaster preparedness, hopefully, and some resilience development, disaster risk reduction um, before the next disaster hits. But we don't really have that anymore. We don't really have that luxury anymore because we go from major event to major event in the span of a day or a week. And then we have often overlapping and converging major events like the fires and flooding this morning. Or as we had in the Northern Rivers, we have a thousand year flood followed two weeks later by a hundred year flood um, in the middle of a pandemic. We don't have an event and then recovery and then preparation and event we have converging crises, we have constant turbulence, um, we have this sense and experience of constantly being unsettled. So in the midst of that experience of turbulence, in the midst of the events we've heard so much about um, here in Australia, one of the constants and one of the positives has been the way that communities have responded, neighbors helping neighbors, groups coming together um, to organize sometimes spontaneously, sometimes as part of some previous preparation, to be both first responders and long-time aids to recovery, right? People in tinnies rescuing people from their roofs, people running into burning forests to save animals, groups of neighbors going house to house to help clean after disasters. Communities have become, out of necessity, their own disaster response and continue to plan to be their own disaster risk reduction in the future. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. So over the last year, with funding from the New South Wales Disaster Risk Reduction Fund, a broad multidisciplinary research team based at the Sydney Environment Institute, along with partners in the Blue Mountains, in the Hawkesbury, uh, and in the Northern Rivers, have been studying the self-organizing community systems that responded to bushfires uh, and flooding in recent years. So with these community-based partners and researchers, we've been examining community groups who coordinated information, labor, funding, and everything else in response to these shock events, often in the absence of more formal emergency response and government organizations. So the team has done extensive interviews, followed up with community-based networking events uh, in these three communities. And we just want to talk a bit about what we've learned uh, what such community-based action um, can do to reduce disaster risk in the short term, uh, as well as what lessons might be 
therefore more longer-term response, recovery, resilience, adaptation, both in and beyond these communities. So we have three speakers tonight who I'll introduce now. Uh, Dr. Scott Weber, Webster sorry, is a postdoctoral post research fellow with the Sydney Environment Institute. Scott's current role is um, a researcher and really is the project manager uh, on this project we'll be talking about today, uh, investigating how Australian communities self-organized before, during, and after the 2019 bushfires and the 20 to 22 floods. Um, Scott's also a researcher who's been um, doing some incredible work with communities on uh, the killing of memory, memoricide as a phenomenon that bears both everyday and more than human dimensions. Next up is Mary Lyons Bucket, who has a passion for building a stronger community in the Hawkesbury region, uh, an area vulnerable to multiple challenges, particularly around climate risk uh, and non-sustainable infringements upon valuable ecosystems and habitats. Mary holds expertise in scientific research, law, and is currently an elected local government representatives. And finally, we have Rebecca McNaught, She's a co-leader of the South Golden Beach Community Resilience Team and is a Plan C board member. Plan C, for those who don't know, is um, previously known as um, Resilience Byron. She's previously worked across Asia, the Pacific, the Middle East uh, as a climate and disaster advisor to the Red Cross and United Nations. She's currently finishing up her PhD at Griffith University, congratulations, uh, on disaster and climate change resilience uh, in the Pacific Islands and in the northern rivers of New South Wales. So, um, Beck and Mary, maybe we'll start um, with you two and get some community uh, input. So, um, just to give some context of the communities where you live, could you just tell us a little bit about those communities and the specific vulnerabilities in the face of the fires and floods that we've been, been um, facing the last few years? Um, Beck, why don't we start with you? Thanks so much, David. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that I live and work on the land of the Minjungbel people of the Bundjalung Nation in the Northern Rivers. Um, I live in what is now called South Golden Beach uh, in the northern end of the Byron Shire. We're a coastal village um, connected to other villages of New Brighton and Ocean Shores. We did a survey of damage uh, in the aftermath of the floods and estimated over 1,100 properties just in our three villages uh, were impacted by floodwaters. Um, and that was in 2022. For some that meant losing cars and transport and access to their employment. For some, it meant losing the contents of their garages and studios, business equipment. For some, it meant uh, water up to their rafters and very traumatic um, you know, attempts to uh, escape the floodwaters. Um, we had no communication for eight days in the aftermath of the disaster. The highway was cut. The supermarket ran out of food. There was a lack of fuel. Um, so even people that weren't directly for, affected by the flood were definitely impacted in terms of uh, their food supplies, their access to their employment. Um, so the ripple effects were, were huge. Um, what we really saw, I guess, in our community was the fact that uh, it was often people who had existing underlying vulnerabilities um, that often fell through the cracks. So it might have been elderly people who 
um, whose usual home care support services um, ceased to exist, uh, in some cases for a couple of months after the disasters, um, because their support service people were also flood affected in uh, nearby, you know, Mwilumbar and and other cases, other places. We had people undergoing cancer treatment, people on dependent on pain medication who had their treatments disrupted, uh, people caring for people with disabilities um, who couldn't leave their high needs um, children to visit recovery centres. And so we saw community networks really step up um, to support each other uh, during those times. And I also just think it's really important to stay up front that in the Northern Rivers, um, it's a really diverse uh, cross-section of communities. Um, so I'll bring one perspective from, from our local community, but I just want to acknowledge that the experiences across the region were really varied and vulnerabilities differ. Um, socioeconomic indicators differ. Geographies differ. So, um, you know, we often talk about the floods, but uh, there were people cut off for six weeks by landslides. Uh, we saw landslides that were hundreds of metres wide uh, engulf entire houses. Uh, we saw areas of Lismore, Wood, Woodburn, um, they were like war, war zones um, after not one but two floods, as you mentioned, David. Um, so even well-prepared businesses, houses that were usually outside the flood areas, um, even in our local community, people who had never been flooded before were flooded. So I think the magnitude and scale took a lot of people by surprise. Um, a lot of people think of the Byron area as uh, an area of, you know, influences and, and movie stars, but it actually holds um, the highest rate of homelessness outside um, Sydney. And um, as you were mentioning, David, the, the, we've experienced a huge amount of compounding disaster impacts in, in recent years. So uh, there was 2017 floods um, at the tail end of Cyclone Debbie. Um, we had bushfires in 2019 in the hinterland. Uh, COVID decimated the arts, tourism, hospitality industry. Um, and then everyone decided they wanted to move to rural areas. So house prices and rents grew exponentially. So there was already a housing crisis before um, the floods, and then the housing stock was really um, impacted further. So I think this question around how we collectively live in and support each other and design support services within the context of um, compounding events is um, a really important question. Thanks, Meg. Yeah, I mean, just visiting there last week, seeing that combination of um, the impacts, but um, Resilience is the wrong word, but just the strength, really, uh, of people coming back um, was pretty amazing. Mary, uh, what about the Hawkesbury? Thanks, David. And, well, to start with, much like Beck, quite quite a few similarities, but also the same thing within our area, quite a diversity of experience and impact uh, that was, um, you know, uh, undertaken by people. Uh, firstly, just to acknowledge our traditional custodians of the lands within the Hawkesbury are the Darug and Darkin young people, and I pay my respects to them. 
the Hawkesbury area is sometimes people don't understand actually where it is. So I'll just set the context for a minute because it isn't the area of the Hawkesbury River that actually enters the sea, which is up the other end down near Brooklyn. It's centred around the townships of Windsor and Richmond and it goes up into, um, we have over 70% national park here, which is of course part of our contributing factor to bushfire. Uh, that includes the Blue Mountains National Park, uh, the Katai National Park, the Wollamai Park, etc. And so it goes up into the mountains and we adjoin the Blue Mountains uh, up in that mountainous area. So we have a lot of shared experiences with them, just as we have a boundary and we have people who, of course, operate within both sides. Uh, we have uh, multiple river systems here. So we've got the Hawkesbury Nepean, uh, the McDonald River, the Gross River and the Colo River. And so that, of course, increases our vulnerability to flooding and our very vulnerable infrastructure connected with that river, which is the river crossings that can be bridges, or in fact, we have three ferries operating across, which is the transport for people from one side to the other. Uh, we've got a very vast geographical area, uh, but quite a small population. So much of it is bushland and much of the population is centred in the urban areas. Within those urban areas, of course, we've got a lot of change unfolding on the periphery of that. And that's also a contributing factor to new sort of patterns in flooding because we haven't actually, hadn't actually had a big flood here since 1992. And within that time period, there's been a lot of land clearing and a lot of pasture land on our, in our adjoining areas, which is now hard surfacing. So, of course, that's made us more vulnerable to a lot more runoff and water, you know, accumulating in that area and impacting uh, many people who have lived along the river for a long time actually said in the floods that they saw flood behaviour they had never seen before. That too, of course, uh, with climate change, of course, we have the very uh, frequent intense rainfalls. In fact, it's raining here now. I don't know if you can hear that, but it's raining quite heavily where I am now in Currajong. And uh, the intense rainfall is adding to the problems our communities are having around localised flash flooding, and that puts a strain on accessibility to services when roads are cut. And it also, of course, has a big impact for a council on how much wear and tear that has on the road systems. So we have to build up with those. Uh, again, like all the rest of Western Sydney, we're very exposed to the urban heat problems and it gets very hot here and we really need to be addressing that as an urgency, which of course we are, but it needs to be fast action and action now. Uh, in terms of our other vulnerabilities, we have very poor, we have many areas and they're mostly the most vulnerable areas with very poor telecommunications. Uh, they get cut off easily. It means they're isolated. They often lose power as well. And we've seen within this study some of the innovative things that communities have come up with to actually address that and to adapt to that. Uh, we've got areas of non-reticulated water and sewer. So maintaining uh, public health, but also maintaining water supply for firefighting and so on is another really big issue for people. Uh, we have had cumulative disasters beginning, I guess, with the Black Summer bushfires. And then uh, after the, the first flood was February 2020, and we've had five floods between 2022 and 20. Uh, 2020 and 2022. And of course, within that time period, we all had the pandemic. So there's been this amplification of stresses upon people. And a lot of that, I think, is only being noticed now. Um, 
Yeah, so we've got that vulnerability and we've, uh, you know, we've got all the issues that go with that. Thanks so much, Mary. I think both Beck and Mary, you've pointed out not just the issue of the increasing events, but also the the context around those in which vulnerability is already increasing and the risk um, is increasing as well. So um, let me turn to Scott. Uh, Scott, you've been working with community members uh, and researchers in the Hawkesbury and the Blue Mountains uh, and in the Northern Rivers um, to look at um, what communities have done, what they've done uh, to respond and what would actually uh, support communities going forward uh, in the midst of this climate turbulence. So what have we learned so far from the research? Thanks, David. And I'd like to start by acknowledging that I am on Darug land, unceded Darug land myself in what is now known as Western Sydney too. Uh, so I pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Um, so clearly, as Mary and Beck have already uh, described and highlighted, there are quite significant differences across the three disaster affected regions that we have engaged with, which applies to the Blue Mountains as well, uh, as well as significant variation internally, um, which is it's been one of the delights, I guess, of, of this project to learn about the various intricacies of the communities uh, within these regions. However, despite these differences, there are some strong common themes that do reoccur. Um, across all three, which underscores the their importance for community-organized disaster response and uh, adaptation. So firstly, local knowledge and pre-existing social connection or social infrastructure is essential in enabling spontaneous community actions and interventions. And this was overwhelmingly <laughs> emphasized. Um, by local knowledge, I mean the knowledge that comes from being situated in place, often for a long time. So close familiarity with the physical landscape as well as its inhabitants. And this ranges from knowing things like street layouts and how they change under different conditions to knowing where people live and what specific needs and resources or skills they have. Social infrastructure is what brings people together and fosters these localized networks that were so effectively drawn upon in times of disaster. So in many cases, these networks were centered around quite ordinary sites like schools, like sports clubs and other networks around recreational activities, places of worship, of course, as well as local community pages on Facebook in particular. In some cases, they were forged already to address other local causes and needs, such as improving school crossings in the Hawkesbury to you know, providing food to people for providing food to those uh, in need, uh, supporting wildlife care, various political and environmental causes, as well as, as Beck in particular highlighted, those networks that do tend to emerge around shared experiences of marginalization and social disadvantage, in particular, First Nations communities, LGBTQI communities, uh, experiences of disability, and so forth. So local knowledge and social infrastructure are interrelated. In some respects, they co-constitute each other. But it is important to emphasize local knowledge in particular, as this also relates to the other key finding of what we've learned from this, from this project, which is that perceptions that maintain disconnections or distrust between communities and the formal emergency management sector are a risk impeding disaster risk reduction. And these perceptions include a lack of recognition or consultation with local knowledge and community responses, 
as well as a lack of reciprocity in the sharing of information and genuine collaboration. There is a strong underlying uh, feeling that local knowledge is not seen as legitimate knowledge, which manifests in a lack of engagement with community responses already on the ground. Uh, it manifests in the duplication of efforts or energies or resources, reduced effectiveness of or efficiency of formal responses that do not draw upon this, uh, draw upon local knowledge, and decisions made against local advice. Participants also noted that fundamental differences in the organizing principles, whereby community responses are more decentralized than the command and control structures of formal agencies, means that community responses are only legible as chaos with no clear entry points uh, by these agencies. And this disregards the strengths of agility and nimbleness that enabled community interventions to make uh, crucial, even life-saving support during the floods and fires. The instances where agencies did consult and engage with local knowledge, such as dropping in on spontaneous hubs to be debriefed about the local situation, often did not involve the reciprocal sharing of knowledge or the opening up of communication pathways. So in this sense, community knowledge is seen as a resource to be extracted uh, rather than a sort of two-way sharing of information and collaboration. Participants also felt that they were perceived as risks or as cowboys by the emergency management sector. And in this sense, the spectre of liability risk shapes um, interactions with agencies appearing more concerned to more concerned with ensuring they are not seen to encourage risky behavior rather than working together to address the needs that required the need for such so-called <laughs> risky behavior. So in short, what we have learned is that community-led uh, disaster response and adaptation must be recognized as essential. And to achieve this, it must be done through tangible shifts in how its foundations in local knowledge and social infrastructure are engaged with and supported at the interface with formal agencies and different levels of government. There was, of course, much more to that event. And you'll find a recording for that on the Sydney Environment Institute website, for which there'll be a link in the show notes. Next, we have a story from The Guardian, and it's by Climate and Environment Editor Adam Morton. The headline of the story is Absolutely Perverse. Climate Scheme Should Reward Australian Coal Mines Whose Emissions Rise. The story begins, 10 coal mines could increase their greenhouse gas pollution until 2030, while being financially rewarded under an Albanese government climate policy that is meant to cut industrial emissions, according to a new analysis. The analysis of how different facilities are treated under the safeguard mechanism, the government's main policy to deal with major polluters, has prompted calls for changes to deal with this perverse outcome and require every coal mine to take additional steps to cut emissions. The coalition introduced the safeguard mechanism after it repealed a national carbon price scheme, with a promise it would be used to stop industrial emissions rising. In practice, companies are often allowed to increase their pollution limits without penalty. A few weeks ago, with two other people, I talked with the member for Nichols, the federal member for Nichols, Sam Birrell, and we talked about the fact that someday soon the produce from the Goulburn Valley, which is largely fruit, may well be impacted by carbon border tariffs. Sam did not seem overly interested in what we had to say, but here it is now, in the story from Reuters. 
that has the headline, EU launches first phase of world's first carbon border tariff. The story is by Philip Beaconsop and Kate Abnett. It begins, the European Union launched on Sunday the first phase of the world's first system to impose CO2 emission tariffs on imported steel, cement and other goods, as it tries to stop more polluting foreign products from undermining its green transition. The planned tariff has caused disquiet among trading partners, and at a forum last month, China's top climate envoy, Xi Zingu, urged countries not to resort to unilateral measures such as the EU level. The bloc will not begin collecting any CO2 emission charges at the border until 2026. Sunday, however, marks the start of the initial phase of the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, the CBAM, when the EU importers will have to report the greenhouse gas emissions embedded during the production of imported volumes of iron and steel, aluminium, cement, electricity, fertilisers and hydrogen. My screen is alive with stories about the climate crisis, but there comes a time when you just have to stop. And this is it. So thanks for much for your company. It's been great to have you along. And if you enjoyed this episode, and I sincerely hope you did, I'd urge you to share it with your friends. Please do that. Because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. Also, I'd love to hear from you. I want to know what you think about this podcast. So please email me at number 7 at icloud.com. Don't hold back. Tell me what you think, good or bad. Please let me know. Also, I'd urge you to follow this podcast because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. So, until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now, please remember to look in the show notes because there's many, many stories I can't get to. So I'll provide as many links as I can. So please don't forget to go there. Now take care.